As you enter into the data center cold aisle, you're greeted with the harsh glow of blinking lights set to the stereo cacophony of screaming fans. But wait, over to the side, there's a row of cabinets that are only sparsely filled, replacing a pile of legacy hardware. A single placard above the row reads, Hyperconverged Infrastructure. Your mind does a somersault with ideas and questions, but have no fear, loyal listeners, for the data knots have set sights on exploring the mysterious world of the hyperconverged. Welcome to the first ever episode of the Data Knots. I'm Chris Wall at Chris Wall on the Twitters, and I'm joined by my co-host Ethan Banks. Say hello to the world out there. The world out there. Hello, Ethan Banks. You might know me from the Packet Pushers podcast, which you can find at packetpushers.net, and in fact, where we are incubating this fantastic new Data Knot show. You just make it so obvious that you're way better at this than me, but that's all right. <laughs> we need we need the expertise in order to plow forward with the awesomeness that is Data Knots. As I alluded to, we're going to be talking all about hyper-converged infrastructure today. It's a very hot topic. I mean, it's something I kind of deal with on a day-to-day basis, uh, consulting and working with clients. Ethan, is that something that kind of peeks into your world from kind of the more networking perspective? In the networking perspective, not as much. So for me, hyper-converged is how do I interface with this thing, this this cluster of devices that have all been consolidated, as you alluded to in the intro, down to kind of a, a small form factor and get it the networking that it needs. So for me, hyperconverge has been about understanding the failover schemes, understanding bandwidth requirements, understanding, you know, can I do LACP to this thing and that kind of stuff. Well, fortunately, knowing that, uh, you know, I think both of us together equals one kind of sort of expert. We brought someone who is actually an expert onto the show today, and it's Scott Delo, otherwise known as at other Scott Lowe on the Twitter's. Scott, please say hello and uh, introduce yourself a little bit for the guests. Hello. Thank you for having me on your very first Data Knots podcast. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to this. I think it's going to be exciting. Uh, a little bit about me. I've got a long and varied and storied history in the world of IT. And for the last year or so, I've been sort of focused on hyperconvergence and convergence in general. I uh, co-own a company called Actual Tech Media, and we've been writing furiously about hyperconverged infrastructure. Ooh, furious. Furious writing. Absolutely. Fast and furious, in fact. We're thinking about doing a sequel. I think you're being a little modest, though, because in some circles, in fact, many circles, you're kind of known as Mr. Hyperconverge. Is that something you're trying to move yourself away from? Because we all know that you're kind of the expert in this field. You know, I, I didn't actually... Somebody told me about that. I actually didn't realize that somebody was... I think it was Stu Miniman that actually called me Mr. Hyperconverged at one point. That's a compliment. I, it is a compliment. It's nice. It means that people are actually maybe actually you know reading some of the stuff that I actually write or you know some of the video that I actually put together. It's not something that I definitely I'm walking away from. I I'm not one that generally jumps into the hype cycle on things, but I sort of jumped in with both feet into hyperconverge because I see the benefits. But uh, it's certainly not the only thing that I do. Um, we're doing a lot around storage. I do still do a lot around CIO topics. I spent a long, a big part of my career as a CIO, so those things still interest me pretty significantly. And in the world of my consulting side of the house, um, I do a lot of other things, including strategy consulting. I, I spent more of last year writing SQL code than I want to think about. So, um, <laughs> right on. you know, a little bit of everything. Well, I say we just rip open some floor tiles and throw open a cabinet or whatever analogy you want to use and, and just go into what this hyperconverged thing is. Because I know for me, the name is goofy sounding anytime there's hyper, super, or duper in a product name. <laughs> you know, it's just like, what is this thing? So is this a technical name? Is hyper converge an actual thing? Is it a marketing name? Is it neither? What does it mean? 
that's a question that comes up a lot when I talk to people about hyperconverged infrastructure. And there's, I tell people in my speaking engagements that things like, if you're ever really bored on a Friday night, get on Twitter and watch people fight about what hyperconvergence really means. And I mean, you have to be really bored. Go pop but, some popcorn and just watch the Twitters. Exactly. <laughs> but one of the things I always remind people of, that hyperconverged is a made-up word. And it is very much a marketing term. And we have vendors that are fighting with each other about that their vendor is hyperconverged more than other vendors are hyperconverged. And I think that, you know, sort of like the cloud has become a thing, hyperconverged has become a thing. You know, it's sort of nebulous, no pun intended with cloud. <laughs> but um, it's, it's one of those terms where we have to have, I think, some kind of baseline agreement on what it really means. And from there, we can then come, we can start to talk about comparing, you know, how solutions stack up against one another. So is it that there's software-defined storage? Because I, I kind of look out in the ecosystem, right? And I see the software plays and the hardware plays. And the kind of common trait is that they're taking these commodity server platforms or form factors, what have you, and they're somehow turning direct-attached storage into software kind of nebulous storage, kind of scale-out storage. Is that what defines hyperconverge, or is that just one trait of a hyperconverged kind of solution? It's definitely one trait of a hyperconverged solution. In fact, the way I would think about it is that all hyperconverged solutions use software-defined storage, but not all software-defined storage is hyperconverged. Ooh. Mm. It's like not all squares are rectangles. Exactly. So, <laughs> or wait, the I other think, way around. <laughs> I think to me, I, I, I think of storage as only one component of hyperconverged. And I think a hyperconverged, it's, it's, it's like the all-in-one solution. You get your compute, you get your storage, and you get a, a management interface that kind of makes the whole thing easy to run and uh, abstracts away a lot of the individual pieces and parts you'd normally be configuring when you put the compute solution together. And that's exactly the case. I think at its most basic definition, we have hyperconvergence, meaning that we're combining servers and compute. I'm sorry, we're combining storage and compute into a single appliance that we then have a, a management wrapper around. Everything beyond that is a feature. So if we're doing data protection, that's a feature. It doesn't define hyperconvergence. One of the reasons I'm sort of passionate about this is because I think that the more that marketing people get involved and try to fight about what hyperconvergence is and isn't, I think the more that it confuses the end users, the potential people who are we're trying to educate about this stuff and help them learn about what it can do. And I think we do them a disservice when we sit there and just duke it out about who's got a bigger hyperconvergence device. <laughs> Go measure your <laughs> chassis size or something. <laughs> <laughs> I have eight drives. Oh, I only have seven. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's okay. the American average, seven drives. <laughs> oh, man. So, okay, we have a platform. It includes software-defined storage. That's, that's kind of table stakes in the solution. And then to kind of differentiate within the hyperconverged realm, it's more around what your software brings to the table, right? Exactly. Obviously, different vendors bring different things to the table. But at a minimum, again, and I think there's one more clarifying point that needs to be made, is most of these systems are based on a virtual storage appliance or a VSA. And their workloads run right alongside those VSAs. Now, there's obviously kind of solutions like uh, vSAN, for example, that are hyperconverged that use a kernel module rather than a VSA. But it's the same kind of concept. The workload that manages the storage, whether that's a VSA or a kernel module, is running alongside all of the business's other virtual machines. They're all sharing the same hardware. That is hyperconverged. If we look at something else where we've abstracted the workloads to run somewhere else, so we're just running storage, with it, even if it's running a VSA, but it's not running any business workloads, that's just software-defined storage. Hmm. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, because yeah. ultimately the VSA has to be using storage devices within the server, right? Using those DAS spinning disk or flash drives within the, the commodity server, correct? Correct. Okay. And it does that using some kind of pass-through mechanism, I'm assuming, or... Yeah, I mean, it's still got to do some work with the hypervisor to be able to communicate with the underlying storage. But the VSA takes care of all that. And the more important piece is that the VSA talks to all the other VSAs that are in the cluster. And that's where the magic really starts to happen. So when we've got the, this basically cluster-wide file system, we all of a sudden look at storage as just a broken-up resource that's, that happens to span the cluster. It's no longer this monolithic thing like a sand that we've had in the past. It's something that we can more easily manage. We can you know, get to a point where we can grow it easier without having to spend tons of money on shelves of disks. Um, and it gives us some potential for ease of management that we didn't have in the past. Yeah, you don't have a separate storage array like you were saying with us. its own management plane and you're, you're plumbing things up into that container of disk. You've got disk that's been virtualized because it's physical disk that's resident in cluster members. And then you're virtualizing that and able to grow it and shrink it and so on as you go. Exactly. Exactly. We ditched the sand, which some people like, some people don't. For better or for worse, the sand is gone and its individual's disks are now spread across those cluster nodes. And kind of putting on my virtualization hat for a moment, I mean, the way it's doing this is that the VSA, you know, virtual appliance on the host or the kernel module is sort of intercepting those storage requests that the VMs would be sending typically to the array, right? So it's saying, hey, I look like an NFS share. You know, when you send IP packets to me, I'll intercept them and then find out underneath the covers where that storage block may exist. And it's either on my node or on another node. I'll go grab it for you and I'll give it to you. So that's how we're building that kind of DAS architecture that looks like shared storage, correct? Correct. And that's why that's so important that the VSA plays two roles. Number one, managing the local storage and intercepting those calls to local storage. But just as importantly, coordinating its activities with all the other VSAs or kernel modules so that it knows where everything lives in the cluster and so that it can be as efficient as possible. Fair enough. When I look at the Twitters, you know, I'll, I'll pop a bag of popcorn and I'll, I'll watch on a Friday night once in a while. There seems to be a lot of, I'll call it technical religion around the kernel module versus the VSA. In one camp, you have, hey, the kernel module is leaner and meaner. It doesn't take up as many resources potentially as a VSA. Whereas the VSA folks are saying, well, you run your critical servers on the hypervisor anyways. This is just another critical server. Is there a right way, wrong way today? Are they just two different ways to solve a similar problem? Um, the answer is the, the final thing you just said, which is basically neither one is necessarily the quote unquote right way. Now, if they all, both obviously have their pros and cons. If we look at the kernel module, um, it's going to be have somewhat better performance because we're not, we don't have the latency of going out to a virtual machine. Um, it gets in the way. But the fact of the matter is that when it comes to overall performance, most organizations are going to be just fine with a VSA. I mean, if you're running something that is absolutely microsecond latency sensitive, neither of these solutions are probably good for you anyway. You're probably looking at some kind of an all-flash or in-memory um, type system that you need anyway. So when we look at the VSA, though, it has some advantages over the kernel module as well. For example, it's hypervisor agnostic. You can move a VSA between hypervisors. I really don't think we're going to see vSAN supported on Hyper-V or KVM in the very near future. Ooh. I mean, it's tightly tied to the hypervisor. That's so, a good point. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but it's a kind of solution-to-solution solution thing at that point. You have Hyper-V's implementation and VMware's implementation, et cetera, and they may not all look and act the same. Correct. Okay. And this abstraction is why a lot of the vendors in the space have had the ability to, using the VSA, 
is why they've been able to start supporting multiple hypervisors. Sure. I mean, there are some solutions in the market that support a single hypervisor by on purpose, and that's part of their value prop. I mean, if you look at vSAN, for example, it's vSphere, and it makes sense. If you look at scale computing, it's KVM. That's part of the value proposition. They've chosen to support a single hypervisor, but they've done that very intentionally for good business reasons. And if you look at GridStore, they're all Hyper-V. There's definitely um, reasons companies have gone specific routes. And I think that the choice of a VSA versus a kernel module or driver in the case of GridStore's solution um, really sort of informs their roadmap a bit, too. So I'm curious about that. Are they choosing to support one hypervisor because they want to focus technically and deliver the best technical solution they can on that hypervisor? Is that maybe also a business decision point for them not to invest in other platforms that their customers might be using? That's a really good question. And I think it depends on the company. If you look at GridStore, they've made the the choice to go all in on Hyper-V. They're the only ones I know of right now that are all in on Hyper-V. So they're going to do a great job supporting people who want to run Hyper-V environments. If you look at scale computing, they didn't necessarily choose KVM because they wanted to choose KVM. They chose KVM because it was open and they could make it their own. Hmm. And that's one of the things we're seeing from other companies as well. Companies like Stratascale are doing the same thing. They're adopting KVM because then they can also own the hypervisor. And that's one of the things I think is an interesting difference between some of the vendors out there. If you look at ones that are supporting vSphere or Hyper-V, they sort of have to live with the decisions that Microsoft and VMware decide to make with regard to the hypervisor. Yep. Ones that are supporting something open like KVM potentially have the ability to uh, sort of start bringing more services in because they can actually force the hypervisor to bend to their will, for example, (laughs) Um, um, which we can't necessarily do with other solutions. Yeah, and I remember uh, a couple of years ago, you brought up scale computing as an example. I remember them at VMworld, which was kind of ironic. Uh, on the show floor saying, you know, don't pay the hypervisor tax, you know, because they use KVM. And that's a perfectly good <laughs> additional use cases or I guess market differentiators. Yeah, we don't we don't use vSphere. We don't use Hyper-V. So you're not paying hypervisor licensing costs. You know, you're using KVM. It's quote unquote free. That's another potential option. Absolutely. And if you look at somebody like a scale computing, you know, in fact, let's look at scale computing and say Stratascale. Um, Stratascale is also based on KVM. But they have very different goals. Stratascale is looking to be a larger service provider and uh, mid-market enterprise opportunity. If we look at scale, their choice of KVM was so that they could really become the number one hyperconverged vendor. All that wasn't hyperconverged when they came out. That wasn't what it was called. But they wanted to own that space in the SMB. And they've done a killer job at it because they can wrap all the services that they want, including some data protection stuff, right into the product. And they've written their own management tools, their own data protection tools, the whole nine yards. You're kind of alluding to something that's interesting here about hyperconverged to me is, again, it goes back to that idea of the all-in-one solution. You know, why do I want one of these things? Because it does a lot of things for me. I don't have to buy mix and match separate pieces and parts to come up with a data center solution that does everything my business needs. I can shop out these different solutions and get everything from one vendor. Is that reasonable? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's going to depend on the vendor as well. Um, I mean, some of these solutions are going to be, I can go get, you know, quote unquote, one throat to choke. I can buy everything for the data center, minus networking, really, mm-hmm. um, that uh, that I need. And when we look at somebody like like that needs an SMB solution, that's really kind of a key thing. They want simplicity. They want things to just work. Larger organizations are more willing to take on some of the pain. Um, but there's solutions that can go from the SMB to the enterprise, and it depends on what you want. If you want that one throat to choke, you can get it. 
If you want something where you can just stand up an application silo for uh, based on a hyperconverged solution, you can get that too and have it live alongside your other workloads. So I think that there's at the, for whatever you want, there's a solution out there that can help you meet your goals. Well, well how would you fit VCE into this scenario then? Uh, I'd fit VCE into this scenario as a large block enterprise play. They're not hyperconverged, although they do have a hyperconverged solution um, that's available or coming out. Is it available yet? I think it just came out or just was announced within the last quarter or two. You know, yeah, the, uh, vScale type stuff and the VX block. So that's that's coming. I would say that they're compared to some of the solutions that are on the market. I can't imagine that the price tag is going to be something that where it would be attainable to an SMB or small mid market. Hmm. And I think that's you know what, some of the. Um, some of the bigger challenges that we see in the market are around smaller organizations. There's a lot, everybody wants to be in the enterprise from a vendor perspective because they're you know they can sell bigger deals fewer times and it's harder to crack the SMB sometimes. I think you're being but, overly nice. You, you crack the enterprise because then you swim in the Scrooge McDuck vault of gold coins. It just goes <laughs> running down every time a PO hits. You know, oh, small margin is eighty thousand dollars. You know, that's the whole price of some of the SMB solutions. So exactly, you got to sell sell a lot, and it's a lot harder to get into that SMB, and and then your margins are are much smaller. That's true, and I so I understand definitely. The idea of starting with the enterprise, potentially starting to develop something that can come down market. And I, I hope that eventually happens with some of the solutions that are out there. But when it comes to something like VBlock and VCE, I just don't know exactly how that's all going to play out yet. I still think it's going to be primarily an enterprise play because I don't think VBlock is really interested in the SMB or even small bid market. I mean, they're really after those big, big margin, big price tag wins. So just to compare the hyperconverged to something else that people might be familiar with out there that I, I think is not hyperconverged would be Cisco UCS? Yeah, that's a good point. In fact, one of the things we see, Cisco UCS is definitely not hyperconverged. It's, it's a server play, but it also has lots of other cool stuff around it. But what it does bring to the table is a much better overall administrative paradigm. If you move forward with managing the data center, it's far easier to administer, and it has lots of cool bells and whistles. What we're seeing as some of the hyperconverged vendors on the market, like SimpliVity, and I think even Maxta, um, can you leverage UCS as the platform on which they operate? So you can actually get some of the goodies from UCS mm. and the goodies you get from the hyperconverged side in a single platform. And it actually converges network, whereas, you know, from what right. I've seen, other than Dell's FX2, all of the hyperconverged guys, it's network is just, hey, on the back of each node, there's any number of one to four, whatever, 10 gig ports, and you plumb those to a top of rack switch, and then it's your problem. You know, kind of network is as usual. There's not much different there. It's really around the compute and the storage and, and the management of that entire block or federation of whatever the nodes might be called based on the solution, managing those as a thing, as a federated thing. And that's exactly the case for most solutions on the market. We are starting to see networking start to take more center stage with some emerging solutions. For example, Stratascale, I mentioned them before. They are, again, based on KVM, and they're starting to do some cool things around internal networking to the cluster. I wouldn't say that they're doing a software-defined networking thing yet, sure, um, but that's certainly something I would see them doing in the future. But at this point, they're able to manage the networking side of things in the cluster to a deeper level than a lot of the other solutions we see on the market right now. They're not just saying, we're going to consume the network. They're actually saying, we're going to consume and try to regulate the network a little bit. Their goal is to better understand exactly what's happening on every individual workload so they can best balance workloads in the data center. And so they look at CPU, storage, IOPS, uh, storage throughput, and uh, network throughput, the metrics that they assess to determine exactly how they're going to run and and place workloads. 
Yeah, when I think of Stratascale, I think of them as trying to abstract away the data center entirely. It's more the messaging I got from them in a kind of a cursory look at their website a while back. They seem to be positioned as a, as a data center operating system where a lot of the individual elements, the pieces and parts just, just go away. And I guess that makes sense then that you'd categorize them in the, in the context of hyperconverged. Yeah, and they categorize themselves in the context of hyperconverged as well. Um, we're actually doing, we've actually been doing quite a lot of work with them and getting a pretty deep understanding of what they do. And at first, I was kind of skeptical, but as I've moved deeper, it's, it's, they've got, they're really onto something. They're a software only play. It runs on any server sort of thing. So they've got this idea of hardware heterogeneity. And if you think about, you know, the data center, we don't want to throw away everything we have. So, you know, there's an opportunity to reuse right, right, right. some of the stuff we've got, but get some of the, again, some of the benefits from hyper, of hyperconverged, uh, using the existing hardware. And that's one of the things Stratascale can potentially do. And I think it's interesting what they're doing with networking. Because I think that's sort of the next great frontier with hyperconvergence. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just laughing thinking about all of the conversations that have been going on lately about software-defined networking. Uh, and just the building blocks are still coming along and they haven't – there's not a lot of agreement yet on exactly what – a software-defined networking infrastructure is supposed to look like yet, uh, what the controllers are going to be, what uh, northbound and southbound APIs are going to look like. Um, and there's so many conversations around fundamentals that are, are key to making software-defined networking work for the industry, such as the conversation around intent. If I create a business policy and I need to tell the network how to implement that business policy, how should I do that? What what language and construct should I have? So I, it'd be interesting as um, as some of the non-networking folks start to influence how the network should be provisioned and consumed. I think we're going to have some really interesting conversations around that that I'll be interested to see. Does that kind of grind your gears a little bit, Ethan? Yeah. Those non-networking folks. <laughs> well, it's it's funny. Get out I, of my data center. I, I wrote a kind of a editorial opinion piece for um for one of our packet pushers newsletters, and I just kind of made the point that networking is just so stuck in the past, and we can't seem to get beyond how we've been doing networking for so long. And there's these dependencies on these really old technologies like Ethernet to uh, to do networking, and it's really it's a anchor around our neck and we really need to rethink how we do networking to catch it up to what the the rest of the data center looks like and how compute resources can be consumed and so on because there's such a connection to legacy hardware like ethernet and uh, there's so much silicon that's tied into accelerating network operations it's not easy to to change the ship and so the, the the people that are trying to you know are at the helm trying to to steer that ship in a different direction are the software people, the people that are saying, all right, well, if we assume some network basics underneath and we uh, and we just use software to change how we're doing things, what might that look like? So it, it is an interesting uh, time. If hyperconvergence is a driver here, it'll be really interesting to hear the ideas that are coming out of those camps from folks like Stratascale. Well, Scott, let me shift the conversation here a little bit. I want to ask you this question. Who am I if I'm someone that is a good candidate for hyperconverged? Um, you're uh, honestly, I think you're a mainstream organization, um, for the most part. And what I mean by mainstream is you don't have these crazy needs around high performance computing or massive, um, data warehouse business intelligence type things, you know, mainstream meaning I need to run exchange. I need to run SharePoint. I need to run my database. I need to run my ERP. Um, and, and those kinds of things. I need to run a file server. I, and I think there's, everybody's got their little niche workload, but those can generally be handled, especially because we see hyperconverged solutions that span all they go from all disk to hybrid to all flash now. Um, so there's something that could for, you know, there's something out there for most workloads. 
Um, but I see the, someone, I, I see a hyper-converged solution as, as being really, really compelling for most operations that are out there if they're willing to think about their data center a little bit differently. And this doesn't mean I think that everybody's going to go out and just buy it tomorrow. I'm not that naive. Maybe I'm a little naive, <laughs> but I still I think that if people take a look at it seriously and they're able to um, sort of think about it both technically and from a, a, an organizational standpoint, I think that they'll, they would see some pretty compelling benefits. But, you know, I think the biggest risk, the biggest challenge for people is overcoming inertia and sort of doing things differently. It's the risk factor, you know, that nobody ever got fired for buying IBM argument. Oh, I hate um, that argument. That's so do I. So horrible. It is. And it's 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 almost <laughs> as bad as as um we've always done it that way. If I were a CIO and one of my subordinates bought IBM, I would probably have to fire them. <laughs> Not just have to, but you would. <laughs> I mean like why did you buy that thing? It's it's so old. It, yeah, publicly too. Make sure you do it publicly. Yes. There will be public square shame. It'll be like that uh, movie Starship Troopers. I'll just, you know, ten lashes in the front square. You know, I like that <laughs> with an Ethernet cable. But I think another point that uh, two different points here. One, a lot of enterprise customers, even though some of these hyper-converged solutions are, what, close to four years old now, anywhere from two to four years old, maybe five. Yeah. That's still not, quote unquote, mature, which is kind of ironic, especially in these days where, you know, software can go from completely nothing in someone's head to semi-production ready in six months, maybe maybe 12 for a long tail. So. There's that kind of block to push against. There's also storage requirements. You know, a lot of folks have this kind of unbalanced storage requirement where just financially, if, okay, I want to put a petabyte of storage, but I only need 10 hypervisors. That doesn't really make sense if I'm having to buy all those kind of together. You know, maybe I'm looking at an Isilon or some big storage array to some big bucket for files. Wait, wait. So what, what you're saying is in a hyperconverged, if you're buying members of the hyperconverged cluster, you can't get storage blocks that big to uh, to be shared across that. You really need you know some outboard storage array if you're going to go crazy and get like a petabyte worth of storage. Well, you know, there's the physical size of the node is is a constraint, right? So you can only put so many drives in there, and the biggest drives we have are yeah. what eight terabytes, six terabytes, depending on the model. And it's probably it's it's to you or for you something like that of a unit and right, uh, right. and it's it's got other stuff in there that needs to take memory and you know CPU and so on in addition to disk drive. Yeah, so that's a common constraint I personally run into trying to design with these systems is just people that are very slanted one way or the other, lots of storage and they need lots of compute but not a lot of storage. It's not necessarily a great fit for hyperconverged. I actually have two thoughts based on what you just said, Chris. The first one is this idea of hyperconvergence maturity. And yes, it's been around for a while. In fact, if you really think about it, it's been around for quite some time. Because I remember being back at a tech field day, and I, I was, it had to be 2009. It was 2009, yeah. And going to Pivot 3. And at the time, it wasn't called hyperconverged infrastructure, but that's exactly what they were doing. So it's actually been around for a long time. What I think has started to happen especially with VMware jumping in, as people are starting to hear about it just now. And I think that the event that I just mentioned, VMware jumping into the space, is really what was sort of um, made the big splash. People started to see this as something real. And then we've seen EMC jump into it. We've seen other vendors, Mm -hmm. tier one vendors jump into it, which really validates the entire space. When you've got just a couple of startups out there, you know, it's easy to say, well, they're just startups. We have to be careful. We don't want to jump into it. But when you start seeing tier one players 
um, and a company like VMware, you know, start to really put major investment into something. It's where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Actually, some- Scott, it's not that at all. It's when Gardner makes a magic quadrant about well, it. Well, you know, that's then true it's legit. <laughs> that, you know, unfortunately, the G word. More true than it should be. It is be. true. Yeah. It is true. <laughs> anyway. And that's what makes people start to take notice. But I think a big event was also VMware. But you're right. The Absolutely. Gartner magic quadrant was a big deal. Yeah. When your competitors um, are, when you have competitors that are of that scale, it completely validates the whole solution. Absolutely. The space as a whole, you know, is sort of rising because of it. The other thing you mentioned is this imbalance in resources. And that's one of the reasons why I carefully say mainstream organizations. If you've got needs that just make your resource balance really skewed, hyperconvergence can be a challenge, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's impossible. I mean, if you look at different solutions on the market, for example, if you've got a high need for uh, lots of storage, um, you know, look for something that can do great deduplication and compression or look for something that can integrate with an existing environment. Um, not all solutions can do that, but there are hyperconverged solutions on the market where you can use existing compute nodes. You can actually use existing storage arrays if you really wanted to from inside the hyperconverged solution. So if you really need storage that just can't, and you, you want to keep some of, say, your mission-critical stuff inside the hyperconverged environment and have the files that sit outside somewhere, you could do that. So there's different ways you can architect these things to get around some of those things. Um, but if you're looking for just an all-in-one that does everything, you know, that's a bit more of a challenge, and there's a little bit more thought that has to go into it. Absolutely. By integration points, you're talking kind of taking hyperconverged and attaching it to a fiber channel SAN. That, that might be a challenge. Yeah, you wouldn't be connected to a fiber channel SAN with any of the solutions that are on the market because yeah. none of them support fiber channel. But they do support NFS and iSCSI, um, some of them anyway. And they can actually... Or even SMB3 in some cases, right? That's true. I mean, if yeah, absolutely. Um, but if you're looking at more of a file-based uh, or a non, I should say... Maybe I should actually say an Ethernet-based protocol um, <laughs> because that's really what it boils down to. I mean, Ethernet is the common fabric of the data center today, right, for a lot of things. For better um, or for worse. For better or for worse. So an Ethernet-based protocol, it, yeah, you can support those depending on the solution, but from inside one of the hyperconverged infrastructure solutions. You know, so we talked around the size of the company, enterprise, SMB. What about verticals? Is there a particular slice within the market that kind of makes more or less sense for hyperconverged? Yeah, I think it can span verticals pretty nicely, but it's going to depend on, you know, obviously, you know, if, you, if, if there's a vertical that's very focused on high-performance computing, for example, like a research vertical, then no way. But let's take a look at something like education. I'm intimately familiar with higher education. I can't think of very many colleges other than research universities where a hyperconverged solution wouldn't be a boon to the organization because it can simplify. You know, one of the things that I was a higher ed CIO for a long time, and I never liked having to spend a ton of money and, a sp- and more importantly, spend a lot of staff resources on things that didn't have a direct return on investment to the to top line revenue. Because um, even looking at a college or university, there is a there is this concept of profit and loss, um, even if they don't state it like that. But it's also far more challenging to get staff that you need. So I, I didn't like having to waste staff. Re- I shouldn't say waste. I didn't like <laughs> having to expend staff resources on on the kind of things that didn't add to the to student outcomes. Yeah. Um, You're kind of looking for those jack-of-all-trades because there's just so many things you have to do, right? Exactly, and that's a huge challenge. I mean, it's it's not too hard to say I, I, to go out and say I need to find somebody who's good with storage, but it's really hard to say I need to go find somebody who's good with storage, good with VMware, good with Hyper-V, good with servers, good with all the applications I run, good with SQL Server, good with firewalls. It's really hard to find that. It sounds like a typical job opportunity these days. They want you to know, you know, speak Klingon and do backflips and also know how to fly. 
which uh, is why I'm actually well qualified for most jobs. Not <laughs> um, well, well, hang on. This is actually a good good question about the organizational impact of hyperconverge because to me it sounds like maybe you are that person if you're dealing with uh, the management of a hyperconverge system. You can speak Klingon and do backflips and manage storage and you know and so on. Uh, or, yes. or is that not the case? Um, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that because let's say, um, sure, so let's use the example of speaking Klingon and doing backflips. In a traditional environment, I have to be able to speak Klingon to anybody and everybody in the organization. With hyperconverge, I just have to know enough phrases to get by. So mm. I need to know, I have to ask where the bathroom is. How do I get to this bus stop? Things like that. I don't have to be an expert in Klingon to be able to go about my day-to-day life. Now, would that be because the management interface takes care of so much of that for me? Yeah, it's not just the management interface. It's the underlying architecture. It's, For example, with hyperconverged solutions, there is no more creating RAID groups and aggregates and all that crap. You don't have to have a super high degree of knowledge of underlying storage mechanisms in order to be able to do your job. You basically have to know how to point a VM at a storage pool and consume storage from that pool. So you have to have enough knowledge of storage to understand things like thin provisioning and um, deduplication and things like that. So you understand mm-hmm. ratios, but you don't actually have to do it yourself, um, unlike you know a lot of legacy systems out there. And when it comes to doing backflips, I would say you know you can actually just do a front flip. Um, <laughs> you can, <laughs> it's, which is easier, right? Or you can just do a somersault and get or by. a barrel roll. Those are or a barrel roll, yeah. right? which I don't think I'd try any of the above personally. Fair enough. You have to be able to know enough to get by. And and this is one of the things when I talk to people about this that I say, we're seeing the rise of of an infrastructure engineer over a storage engineer, virtualization engineer, server engineer, all that good stuff. It's someone who is that jack of all trades and master of none. And that's actually okay because they don't have to go in with deep subject matter expertise on every array under the planet, for example, under the sun. They just have to know enough about how to um, about what the intended outcomes are, rather than the inputs. If that makes sense. And, and I'll also say that under the planet sounds like a really interesting storyline. Under the yeah. sun didn't sound as interesting. <laughs> I just like that you took the speaking Klingon example and rolled with it. You get a kudos from me on that. Uh, that, that takes skill. Kapla. Yeah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> uh, but no, having, you know, I obviously don't do day two operations with a lot of these systems, but you go into the interface and it's just so darn simple. It's either baked into the hypervisor management platform, such as the vSphere client, or they have an independent client used to access the system. And that's the goal, right? All these next generation systems, the goal is to abstract away a lot of the complexity. It's still there, but it's not your problem. There's, you know, Skynet's dealing with it for you. And that's a lot of value add. I'll put my nerd hat on, though, and and complain and go, oh, well, if it's a simple interface, that means it can't be that powerful. They're taking away a lot of the my tweaking ability and the nerd knobs aren't there. You know, it's more of a toy at that point, right? Um, You know, you could say that. And. I think that's actually one of the things that we as IT people have to get over a little bit. We have built these houses of cards in the data center because we played with all the nerd knobs. We know what they all do, but this poor guy that comes in right after us is going to have a huge problem. He probably spends a month or two. I remember starting some jobs. You spend two to three months just learning you know, where all the booby traps and skeletons are from the previous architect or engineer. And then you get to actually start adding value and pivoting you know, around those booby traps. Yeah, right. So there's, here. 
you're actually adding no value for the for that time that you're just discovering booby traps. Yeah, it's it's a yeah. long onboarding process. Yeah, I was playing devil's advocate with that question. I, I actually completely agree with you guys that uh, simple is best, and you never turn a nerd knob unless you have one darn compelling reason to do it. Yeah, they're there. Yeah, yeah we know what they do. But um, it, it's the same pitfall with networking. If you over-engineer this, uh, this network with a lot of complexity that adds very little value, the person that comes after you is just going to be looking at this code going, what do they do and why? I'm scared to change <laughs> anything because something might break, but I can make no sense of this. And I've had that situation with code. My, my very first IT job, I did um, a lot of coding, and I came in after people sometimes. And I had a guy, a guy that before me, one of the programmers that would name th- variables things like thing one and thing two. Yes. Oh, and you jerk. <laughs> you want to know how hard that was to deal with? Um, exactly. Reminds me of the old days when we named servers after like planets or comic yeah. book characters or something. A couple of organizations I've worked that I've nixed those kind of naming conventions and said, look, we're going to go with something. And it's, I know it's fun and exciting, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to use the appropriate planet. I don't know what Neptune runs. I didn't, I need to know that for the <laughs> server name. Yeah. To be honest, a couple of years back or several years back, I was kind of that guy. I was upset a little bit to see uh, at the time we were looking at reference architectures, looking at FlexPod, looking at VBlock, et cetera. And I was thinking, but then what do I do? You know, I'm the architect. There's nothing left for me to do. And it was simply a matter of coming to grips with that's not what I do anymore. But in the case of, hyperconverged, you may not be building these little Lego blocks anymore. You're just putting them together. But now you can take advantage of the APIs. You can figure out ways to actually put VMs that run applications on top of this platform mm-hmm. and do things that someone actually cares about and the whole reason they're paying you a paycheck, obviously. I get that question a lot is, well, if I do this, I'm the storage guy, I go away. And it's like, no, you could if you're not willing to adapt. I mean, the phrase is adapt or die. One of the other things I say is we've told in IT, we've told the organization for decades that you have to change the way you do business in order to keep up with the times. And we have to do the same thing in IT. Times change. And we're the biggest change agents out there, but we're at least willing sometimes to actually undergo change. Um, this is not the first time. I mean, it's like uh, Battlestar Galactica, right? Um, this has all happened before and it will all happen again. Yes. Uh, and... You know, we went through this with the switch to mainframes, uh, switch away from mainframes to the LAN. You know, we've gone through this with distributed storage to the SAN. People had, they held near and dear what they do, and that was their value to the organization. People have to start thinking outside the data center box a little bit and start thinking higher level. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to be, my job, in fact, I asked the question of some of my um, engagements about, how many of you love managing storage? And I've only ever had one guy raise his hand. Yeah. <laughs> and I Did he said, invent the platform? Like, was and, it his baby? Said, no, he, he sat in the data center in the dark. He looked at the blinky lights. You threw a piece yeah. of raw meat in there once in a while just to keep the beast happy. <laughs> and right. he was that guy. Yeah. He was that guy. But I mean, he really did enjoy managing storage. Great. But go do something else because you're going to have to learn new skills. I mean, you, if you just, and it's the way we get through life. If I, you know, didn't know anything more than I did when I was 20 years old, I'd be pretty useless. So Scott, I got I got one more kind of practical question for you here. We've talked about hyperconvergence and how it's what the platform does, and then we got into the organizational stuff and how it impacts us and the need to change. But I gotta flip this back around and go, can I how big can I actually make one of these hyperconverged systems? Because you said it's like broad applicability, right? And it's yeah. but at the same time, it's not a V block. Uh, it's not huge. Are there limitations practically to where I can fit in a system like this? It really depends on the vendor. Not every vendor can scale um, the same way. But if you look at, let's just take vSAN, for example. It can go, I think, to 64 nodes now. That's pretty freaking insane. And many petabytes of storage, 
hundreds of thousands and millions of IOPS, these kinds of systems, depending on what you need, can grow almost as far as you really need to. Now, again, there's always... Okay, so you're making a point here. I could start smaller with my hyperconverge. I could start with four nodes or eight nodes or some such, and then just keep throwing more nodes at this thing to to scale it up, get more operations that I can put through it. You got it. As you need more storage or as you need more compute, you add another node. Now, the question there always comes up, you know, we don't want to have to waste resources. We don't have to, if I, I just need more storage. I don't need more RAM and compute. And I'm, I'm going to kind of preemptively answer that question if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, the question, I get that, asked that question all the time. And my answer is twofold. One is, remember, we're based on a VSA here. The VSA itself needs RAM and CPU in order to operate. So by necessity, when we add storage, we have to add enough RAM and compute for the VSA to operate. Second, we have the potential with hyperconvergence to transform what we do operationally. And that's a massive potential soft saving sometimes because we're not going to just fire people, but it gives us some huge opportunities that we didn't have before as far as staffing and other things go. The cost of a couple of extra Intel CPUs is negligible when it comes to the potential operational savings we can see depending on if we leverage these things correctly. Okay, so I got I got one more question before we wrap up here, which is this. We've talked around a bunch of vendors, but can you give me at a high level uh, a, a list of vendors that you would consider to be hyperconverged? For me, since I haven't dug into the space, I'm thinking about Nutanix and SimpliVity and uh, EVO Rail from VMware, and then my brain kind of peters out. What have you got? Well, I got a list of 21 for you. <laughs> We have Nutanix and SimpliVity, as you mentioned. They're the two big players right now. We have Scale Computing, which I think is probably uh, the leader in the SMB space uh, as, as things go right now. Then we have companies like Maxta, Atlantis, Stratascale, EMC with vSpecs, um, VMware with Evo Rail and vSAN, Pivot3, GridStore, Nimbox, DataCore, StoreMagic from, from StoreMagic, actually, uh, HP Store Virtual, Hitachi Data Systems has got a product out there, Yadabyte, Riverbed Steel Fusion is something that's on the list. Uh, VX Racks from VCE, Piston Cloud, SpringPath. So I think there's there's a lot of opportunity out there. I have to do some research on some of these companies because I didn't even know they made hyperconverged solutions. Wow. Yeah, but some of those companies, I mean, these are all different niches within hyperconverged. I mean, I, w- I guess like SimpliVity and Nutanix, I kind of think of as going head-to-head with uh, VMware and EVO Rail. But I mean, some of these are software-only. Some of these are selling you full nodes you know, you know with storage. Um, Correct. Uh, like Steel, Steel Fusion from... Uh, Riverbed, I thought of that more as dedupe. Um, I mean, if they actually bundled all of pieces and parts together into a full-on hyperconverged play, I don't know. But honestly, to, to a deep level on Steel Fusion, it was just one of the things as I'm researching, like getting a list of all the companies that do something with hyperconverged that came up. Yeah, and you, you can run some VMs on there. It's kind of like a remote parachute, so to speak. So it, it does kind of qualify. I can I can see that uh, fitting into your your list there. And Stratascale, we talked about earlier, they're a, they're a software solution. You're, you're bringing your own hardware. Yeah, and Maxta does that too. Um, they used to be just software. You would only bring your own hardware. And Maxta now has solutions for both people who are want to roll their own, basically, with um, the software. Or you can buy an appliance that has Maxta pre-installed. And Atlantis is a... I wouldn't say they're a newcomer in this space, but they made a big splash recently with one of the things that drives me utterly insane with enterprise IT is the the opaque pricing model. And <laughs> Atlantis has actually come out and they've said, here's what we sell, here's how much it is. And that to me, and so does Scale actually does that too, Scale Computing. You can actually go up to their website and find out how much something costs 
without having to get, you know, waste 67 hours with a, with a reseller trying to get them to tell you what a list price is. Hello, thank you for emailing us. We would love to sit down with you and have a chance. Yeah. Once you got on that list, the unsubscribed is now the unsubscribe button. It's like the elevator closed door button. It's not actually wired half the time. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like what drives me even more nuts is we're coming by at ten o'clock tomorrow, so be ready. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're going to come by and talk to you. I've gotten those kind of messages. You know, I, I think that this the transparency you can get from some of these companies is better, but we need to do more. All right. Well, we'll wrap it here. Uh, that's it for today's show of the Data Knots podcast. So how did we do? Interesting, exciting, boring, repulsive, not enough Klingon, too much Klingon. It's up to you. Send us some feedback, share what's on that snazzy noodle of yours, and submit your ideas for future topics. You can reach Ethan. He's EC Banks on the Twitters or his blog, EthanCBanks.com. Or myself, Chris. I'm at Chris Wall on the Twitters and my blog is WallNetwork.com. For more superb Packet Pushers content, crab walk on over to the packetpushers.net to partake on the bountiful feast of podcast goodness. Until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindles spin, and your cables be cleanly managed. Yeah, in fact, can we hold on for one second? Because I actually have a list. Yep, get your list. We need to keep this in here and just play like elevator music while we wait. Or play the Jeopardy theme. Yeah, the Jeopardy theme, of <laughs> course. <laughs> <laughs> Reboot. Oops, that's not going to work. You and your damn list. Rock on, brother. I think you left the list under the Hustler magazines. I probably did. Who reads Hustler anymore? Hey, don't knock it (laughs) till you've tried it again. (laughs) That's probably my most fun intro I've ever read my entire adult life. So that's (laughs) That's really awesome. Actually, (laughs) that's really enjoyed that.